Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. The question that we're tackling today is honestly a question that many Christians argue about. And so we'll see what you think uh, as we go through this discussion today. But the question is, is the church necessary for salvation? And can you be saved apart from the church of Jesus Christ? That's the question. And, and you probably heard the phrase, I got Jesus and that's all I need. And so we're going to try to get at that. And is that, is that accurate? Is it? Well, even kind of the Protestant version of that, like all I need is my Bible. Right. Like me and my Bible. Yeah. I feel like a result of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Martin Luther lifted up the idea of sola scriptura, the scripture alone. He was really annoyed with a lot of the rules and regulations of the Catholic Church, that the liturgy was in Latin, not in the language of the people, that the church was selling indulgences by telling people that they could be persuasive in their own salvation by and the salvation of their family members by how much money they gave. And so... He came up with this idea of sola scriptura, which wasn't just original with him, but um, this idea that uh, you can have faith, that, that, that his faith was going to be based on scripture alone. Uh, I don't know that he would be happy with what we in the Protestant tradition have done with sola scriptura. Uh, the historian D.H. Williams says of Luther, when Luther said sola scriptura, he did not mean nuda scriptura, the idea of naked scripture, that like scripture, we're going to break scripture away from the history of the church because really the Bible is the church's scripture. It it was finished in the, uh, I think the fifth century, late fourth or early fifth century. Um, and the church universal said, you know what? These are the writings that we're going to say are scriptural, are a part of our canon. Oh, we're not going to accept some of these extra canonical works that we under, that we still have today, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. It's not a part of our canon of scripture. And who tells us that? Well, the church did. And I think there would be some people that would believe, you know, the Bible just kind of appeared on its own. Like it just kind of like magically, mystically appeared that in the same way that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that he somehow just like unloaded the Bible, you know. But really, if you know anything about church history, you realize the first 500 years of the church is the church arguing and debating and praying and trying to figure out what texts ought to be our additions to the Old Testament. So even, you know, the idea of scripture alone is is uh, um, maybe somewhat of a, of a myth or something that uh, we very much misunderstand. But the, the question today, does one need the church for salvation? Yeah, it, it's interesting at Protestant Reformation, and then you had the Enlightenment, which was kind of this move to individuality. Yeah. And and this idea of we human beings will, will figure out the solutions of how to live forever, how to... To, to postpone death, um, sickness, and and unfortunately, out of that alight, enlightenment uh, period, also that, that thought kind of leaked into the church 
that out of the the Protestant Reformation, I no longer need the church to tell me how to believe or or to read scripture to me or to to be a part. I don't need to be a part of this community now. I can now read the Bible and interpret it myself and and put meaning into it based on what I think or I feel. And like I said, so there was a whole lot going on around that time that led to, uh, I don't need to be a part of this community anymore. I don't need you to tell me. I don't need to to be a part of the gathering or uh, a group of people who are centering their lives on Scripture because now I can sit on my couch or futon or whatever they had back then. <laughs> and and I think it, I think you're right. Luther would would is probably roll, rolling over in his proverbial grave or wherever he is because. I don't know that he ever had that we would have 30,000 or some odd denominations who all are claiming to have the ultimate truth of the scripture or of who God is. You you bring up a really good point. I think that flowing naturally out of the Reformation is the suspicion of the church, which really that's kind of how it was birthed. The Protestant Reformation was essentially – people being suspicious of the church and the early reformers were the people who dared challenge the church. So John Wycliffe, who was trying to translate the Bible into the language of the people, he was, he was killed, you know, John Huss, these different, these different kind of pre-reformation reformers were the ones that had enough courage to speak up to the power of the church because the church had uh, become one with the state. Yeah. And there was no difference in there was no differentiation in power and authority and it had become corrupt as the two things the church and the state were conflated and a lot of the the early reformers they really held up this idea um that um things things needed to they needed to change or be different but then coming out of the reformation you get radically different ideas of what different needs to look like. So in Switzerland, where John Calvin was, uh, his idea of different was a church state that was not Catholic, but that was reformed, you know? But then you have the Mennonites and the Amish, the Anabaptists, who saw the, the need for a wholesale separation between church and state. And then there's kind of ideas of everywhere in between, but the, the, the theme... Uh, the thread that kind of ran through all of the Reformation movements was a suspicion of the church. You bring up, I think context is huge. It's, it's something I, I was working for a pastor who will rename, remain, remain nameless. Um, he asked me this question one time, and, and it still makes me giggle. Um, it's the question that a lot of people ask about the book of Revelation. Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Like when, when, when is this rapture? Which we've talked about is maybe just even a poor interpretation of, of what the book of revelation is trying to say. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I was new and, you know, I didn't want to like question his authority. And he's like, Oh, I'm definitely pre-trib. And then he made a statement that, that still makes me go. He says, and, and kind of horrifies me, but something to the effect of, well, God would never let his church go through that. To which I then said, what I didn't say, and I thought, interesting, what would you say to the people in Sudan who are being, who think we're in tribulation currently right now? Well, yeah. But contextually for him, he was taking a, a scripture 
and applying it to an American church who isn't under persecution. And and so once again, his context was allowing him to take this this passage or this thought and apply it to just his context, rather than understanding that 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 scripture came out of a, of a specific context. And so to me. What would it look like for a community of people who were trying to really wrestle with what is Scripture trying to tell us about who God is? And if you had a, a community of people who were pushing you towards a, a better, a holistic, a, a a greater understanding of where these Scriptures and passages came from, then it it potentially would have um, he, he would have had a different perspective rather than just individual. So I think context, uh, you know, I think you see that in the civil rights movement. And, and I've talked a lot of time about how as a, as a white person reading Mary's Magnificent, and then if you were to go during the civil rights movement, they read that passage in a totally different, from a totally different perspective about the high being brought low and the low being lifted up. And, and, and so it's hard for, for I think sometimes people in a, in a, in a context where things aren't bad to understand that most of scripture is written from a group of people who were always on the underside on the, the, they, they weren't the, the greatest, they weren't the strongest, they weren't the political power, they weren't um, viewed highly in their community. And, it, and it, when you can understand how do I get myself out of my context? And I think that only happens when I'm with a group of people who are always trying to call me and push me. Um, and so I think, Maybe that brings us to a, a quote from a, a dude named Cyprian. It's funny to refer to him as a dude, but um, yeah, the third century dude, <laughs> the third century dude, in his toga and sandals. And um, but he had a quote, and you, you, you have it, I think, in front of you. And um, we're gonna, let's test your Latin. And um, so the the Latin phrase is "extra ecclesium nulla salus," and um, the phrase means outside the church there is no salvation. So I think that we, in our context, we hear that and we think, well, that's silly. Um, but I think we really have to define the word salvation. And the word church. And the word church. Exactly. And I think we we often view it as saying a prayer. Salvation, that is. Salvation, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Salvation as, as a prayer that is said at a specific time, a specific place, and that it could happen anywhere. And, and and then often leads to it doesn't have to happen in a building, which we would often call the church. And 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 so I think salvation has to we have to come up with a maybe a more robust understanding of the word salvation and a more robust understanding of what church means. And church not being a particular place or an address, but a group of people who are trying to be like Jesus. So let's start by defining salvation. I think that in the Protestant traditions, the word salvation has been uh, defined primarily using two New Testament texts. Challenge me if I'm, you think I'm wrong, but I think the two are, the first one is the, the very simple phrase that's a part of the Romans road, which we've lifted up, in my opinion, very out of uh, first and second century Jewish Roman context, because there was a lot more cost then, but the idea... Um, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, that idea that all it takes to be saved is a, is a confession with your mouth and some sort of belief in your heart, 
that's all that is required for salvation. Just so you know, if you're listening to this podcast, those were not the words of Jesus. Those were the words of Paul in a very godless Roman age in the book of Romans, okay? That was, Jesus did not say that. I would wrestle with them a lot more as kind of the source of uh, the math equation for salvation if they came from Jesus. The confession of Jesus in that context is way different than confession of Jesus in our context. Completely. You would, ha- you would confess Jesus when you were being confronted by the people that were going to take you to the lions. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> like just completely different. It was not a nominal confession. No. It was a life. It was a wholesale turning away from, uh, from any sort of like economic stability. I mean, a confession of Jesus then, we're just talking completely different thing. Okay. So I think that was, but I think for our understanding of salvation, I think that we have taken a very simple formula there. And we, and then we've also, um, uh, it was um, in the book of Acts, early in the book of Acts, Acts three or four, where Peter talking to the Sanhedrin, he says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And again, I think that verse has been grabbed out of context in which Peter was addressing Jews and um, who were very invested in under- the understanding of the name of God and who God was. One of the Ten Commandments is not taking God's name in vain. And he was saying something very audacious to them that the revelation of God is this person of Jesus. Um, not just this idea that if you confess him with your mouth, somehow you magically become saved. So I, I think that our understanding of salvation has really been cheapened. So uh, coming out of the Reformation, there was there was this idea, this Anabaptist idea, which is very strong still in America, as we're very influenced by the Anabaptists, and I think for the good. But this idea of be of believers' baptism. So prior to the Reformation. Um, everyone was baptized as an infant. You were just baptized. It was a part of kind of a cultural birthright. If, if you were in a Western Christian society, you were just, you were, you were a Christian. There was no decision for being a Christian. And part of the Reformation was this, this recognition of, you know what? For individuals should have a point where they decide, I am going to be a part of this. And a lot of people differ on, you know, the role of a person in their own salvation. And we could argue about this for a long time. But the Anabaptists essentially said, no, an adult, which the, the Anabaptists were historically the Mennonites and the Amish, and there's other groups as well that were Anabaptists. But they said, the Anabaptists said, uh, it should be the role of a, of a person in their adulthood, in maturity, to decide whether or not they make a decision to be saved. Now, they understood that person still to be very much a part of the church up until that point. But by choosing not to be saved, essentially what a person was choosing was not to be a part of the church. That's really what they were choosing, not to be saved sometime in the afterlife. But by choosing not to be baptized, they were saying, I don't want to be a part of this confessional community. I want out. And fast forward several hundred years we in North American Christianity, I think we have an understanding of salvation as a personal decision to, that will affect whether or not we're saved in the afterlife. But we don't, we don't make the decision when we're saved 
of what church we're going to be a part of or what fellowship we are going to be a part of. When historically that decision, the opportunity for that decision really came out of a decision for individuals in adulthood to say whether or not they wanted to be a part of a church community. And I think that unfortunately due to that, baptism has lost its sacramental significance. That's a big word, but it's, it's lost its... Yeah, explain that. I think that's a good point. I, th- I think it's... it's. This is going to sound very, very um, judgmental, but it's almost like we've cheapened the the sacrament of baptism. We we say it's important, and and we say... Let me see if I can explain it this way. So I've been to Jamaica a few times on mission trips, and... Wow, real tough place to go. To. I'm sorry. No, there really is great poverty in Jamaica. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. It's a sorry. It's a diverse place. Diver, anyway. Yeah. Anyways, so we were there, and and for them, baptism has a significance. Like you said, you could be a part of the church, but the church wasn't necessarily holding you accountable to be a different person until you were baptized, and your baptism was saying, "Okay, I'm going to be. I'm going to." seek to live my life the way that Jesus would want me to live it. And baptism was that transformational, that that moment of declaration to the world that I'm going God's way. I'm gonna I'm gonna seek to I'm gonna join this community. I'm gonna be a part of this community. I'm gonna allow this community to hold me accountable to to living this way. But until that moment, you could come to church, you could and and you know they would obviously want you to be better. But when those people said, I want to be baptized, it was a huge, huge thing in, in their lives. And and I think we've lost a little bit of that due to the understanding, once again, of this this individualistic, this um, just this confession of uh, this this idea of the afterlife. You know what I'm saying? And, and that, that my salvation is being saved from hell rather than to a life that God would have for me here and now. So as far as the perspective of salvation i mean it's funny we talk about particular terms but they affect so much other other things other sacraments you know it's it's so easy to get to baptism because what else is baptism but this sacrament of this kind of meeting place of the individual salvation and the church i mean that's ex- that's kind of what baptism is you know but the understanding of salvation I think that we would kick against, I don't mean to speak for you, sure. but it is, is that uh, the, the popular notion of salvation is that I made a decision, I make a decision to say that Jesus is Lord. And that's kind of a guarantee that when I die, I will go to heaven. And that's, that's not a biblical concept. Uh, Matthew 25 actually gives a very different biblical concept of salvation that the people who thought they were entitled to being with Jesus, to those people, he said, I'm sorry, I never knew you because I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry, you didn't give me something to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. The people that thought they had prayed the right prayer or done the right things in their life, they actually were the ones who were not saved. Yeah, and even the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's manifesto, you might say, yeah. his, his big sermon, um, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, 
evildoers. And so it seems at this point that it's more than... Shouldn't we all just pause and be very afraid? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Like, who should... Who of us should be secure in our salvation? If you were to look at me, I'm quoting, having quoting up quotes. <laughs> I mean, that is such a troubling text. Because it doesn't say any people. It gives the, uh, it's definitely the fear of, it has nothing to do with even what I believe or what I say, but it is this life that God is calling me to that, that, that shows the world that I am different, that I am choosing to live life different, that I am choosing to be something other than what the culture around me is is telling me should define me, should give me meaning and purpose. It's something different, something totally different, and, uh, and we've we've called it the third way. It's a different way sometimes than than um, once again what culture may throw our way. Well, and I think you're making me think about kind of the understanding of what salvation actually is, you know, there, there are people in our North American Christian subculture that talk about this idea of once saved, always saved that like, if you, if you pray a prayer or have some sort of salvation conversion experience, then kind of you're good for the rest of your life. But that that's completely, um, uh, antithetical to a biblical understanding of salvation. I mean, even in the Psalms, after uh, Psalm 51, after David has committed sin with Bathsheba, we would kind of understand David, the guy who in, in scripture is called a man after God's own heart, to be one that is like secure in salvation or something like this. Well, he he commits adultery and he begs of God in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of salvation, the joy of walking with God, the joy of being with God, which why would he be pleading that? If there weren't a legitimate fear in the psalmist of being out of outside of God's good grace, I think it it caused to to my mind too. I think Paul said it, but I, and I know First Peter did because we're journeying through that that book in in our church right now, and he calls Jesus the cornerstone. That that and and in our mind, a cornerstone is this nice little brick that we put on a building that really has no significance other than what is put on it. And that understanding, the cornerstone was literally what you built the rest of the house or the rest of the structure on. And if the cornerstone was off, then the house was going to be compromised and and it could be tragic. And so when you say, is Jesus is the cornerstone, we have to be able, willing to accept the life that Jesus came to live, this life of, you know, Philippians 2, that he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took on the very nature of a servant. I think of Mark 10, where he says, if you want to be great, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you got to take up your cross and you're actually going to have to serve people. That's the stone that if we are following in this understanding of, of salvation in Jesus Christ, we have to be building our lives on that cornerstone. And 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 then Paul and Peter both say that it's a stumbling block to people who who are looking for Jesus to be something different or looking for this life to be something different and and so people trip over it because they they come to this faith and they think oh man this is going to be great all my problems are going to be solved no more suffering that is promised to us later but we we are are called to to have the same mind the same heart the same attitude that Jesus had and to understand that he was here for the suffering, the ones who are on the outside, the ones who, um, who, who the rest of society had thrown to the side, and, and to really take up our cross and follow after him with everything that we are. And when we build our lives, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, 
it is a totally different mindset where it's no longer the world and and its desires and i think it even gives us a different perspective on what church is and 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 the function of church and how that plays out in our life and the lives of the other believers that are 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 saying they want to be a part of this community as well and and it causes us to a totally different way of living so for salvation i think what we're saying tell me if i'm wrong what what we are saying is that there is an unknown to salvation uh, some people love the idea of eternal security, and they make fun of those who don't uh, adopt an idea of eternal security, this idea that you can never lose your salvation. And what they say is, if you don't have eternal security, what you have is eternal insecurity. But the idea is Jesus never came to give us security and salvation. Just, th- I mean, to think, just think about that for a second. Like Jesus never said to anybody, hey, the stuff you do, ah, don't worry about it. It's covered by my grace, man. And some people might bring up, what about the guy on the cross? I think the story of the cross is not the story about how Jesus was indifferent to all the sins of this man's past. I think the story of the thief on the cross, when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I think that's a story about God's grace because someone had a moment of turning, a moment of regret, a moment of realizing, dear God, I have wasted my life and I'm, this is judgment to me. And I I believe in the total radical grace of Jesus, 100%. But our version of salvation in North America right now is a version of indifference. Hmm. At least that's how it's been. That's how I hear people talking about it. I'm saved. I'm covered. This idea of, um, what is it? Imputed righteousness. That like Jesus like imputes righteousness on us. uh, This kind of reformation idea that when... God looks at us, he sees Christ, so he doesn't, so God actually can't see through Christ to see us. I mean, it's just kind of this, Jesus never said any of that stuff. In fact, he let people walk away. You think of the rich young ruler. That is a sad story, and we ought to sit with it for a second. Yeah. He he didn't say, oh, you don't want to do that? That's cool. (laughs) He, He let him, he let him go in essence. Um you know, I don't think he looked at Judas and thought, you know what, that's cool. Um, I, I, I think of others, Nicodemus, you got to be born again, man. Like, you got to be and, burned and, into this new yes, life. Yes, yes. Not, not, pray, not pray the 1960s prayer. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are, are made new. You know, yes. I think that's what Paul said. And, and so I think that, that if we, it reminds me of Bonhoeffer. And his whole idea of cheap grace that... And you guys, if there's, if there's ever been a theologian that we ought to be listening to f- from the 20th century in Germany, it's not Karl Barth or all these other academics that left Germany during the Third Reich. It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer who gave his life to the church. So I just... Commercial for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> if you want to talk about radical Christianity, read The Cost of Discipleship. Yeah. And he really gets at this idea of... You know, grace without discipleship, grace without a cost to me. You know, he, I think there's a line there that says it cost him everything. And somehow I don't think it's going to cost me a thing. And, and, and it's not that those actions or that that life is where the salvation comes from, but there's, there's got to be this, if Christ really has made us different, if there really is a old things have passed away, behold, all things are coming new then shouldn't Christians look different and be different? And shouldn't that be a, a sign, a, a symbol, a representation 
of who Jesus was and who we feel like he is compelling us to be. So we're asking the question, is there any salvation outside of the church? And to get to the answer to that question, we're trying to define the term salvation and church. Which people have been trying to do for thousands of years. Yeah, so I think we've also demonstrated that we don't, that we, I think what we're doing more is we're pointing out kind of the faults in the current popular understanding of salvation. But we have 2,000 years of church history at our disposal. Jeremy and I have done a lot of undergraduate and graduate work in theology and would both confess that salvation is somewhat of a mystery. This idea of I'm guaranteed salvation in a sort of entitlement is just not a biblical idea in any sense. So maybe it will help for us to define the church. Yeah. So that's the question. What's, what is the church? Isn't it, here's the church, here's the steeple, open up the door and see all the people. <laughs> oh, the jokes. I think the church is a group of people who would confess Jesus is Lord and are seeking to make the world we live in more like his kingdom. That, that maybe the prayer of the kingdom is, is the definer of the church, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, that's very probably simple, and I'm sure that I'm missing a whole lot, but it seems to be a group of people it's not a location. It's not a, it's not a, you know, I tell my church all the time that God forbid this were to ever happen, but if a tornado were to come through and knock down our buildings, Pauline Church of the Nazarene would still exist because it's a group of people who are striving together to be more and more like Jesus every day of our lives. I think about the church as the body of Christ in two uh, sort of concepts. The first is the international one and the historic, the, the international historical church where like the, the church is in the New Testament, the body of Christ and all over the world, the, the church is the physical manifestation of Jesus in the world. But there's also, and, and, a, lot of, and a lot of people that would say that they are a part of that are, that are saved apart from the church would consider themselves a part of that church, the kind of international historical church, right? But I, there, I, I don't believe that there exists a church apart from my local church. And here's what I'm saying when I say that. For me to say that I love the church or that I love Jesus, I have to love Jesus as Christ's body in the particular location that I am in, which means I have to be a part of Christ's body, the church in my location where I am. I love the, I love the metaphor of marriage yeah. for our relationship with God. So to say that I love God, but I don't attend church or I'm not a part of a church body would be like me saying I am married but I don't need to spend any time with my wife. Legally, can you be married without spending any time with your wife? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know the court documents for sure. Is that a legitimate marriage between two people that don't spend any time with each other, edifying each other, challenging each other, encouraging each other? No. And quite honestly, a marriage in which you don't spend any time with your spouse is not a marriage that's going 
to last or that's going to be robust or that's going to have any sort of meaning in this life. Or be the example that Jesus gave to marriage of God's love for people. And and so, you know, we could go down a whole rabbit trail about Christian marriage and what we've done to it in our country and how we have, um, once again, it's not a sacrament in our denomination, but I, I feel like we should maybe give more weight to it. Yeah, we've maybe. undervalued it at yeah, least. At least, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that as we are a part of a group of people, so it's interesting, um, once again, with this whole stone understanding. And, and so in First Peter calls Jesus the temple, and then he calls him the priest, and then he calls him the sacrifice, and he gives him kind of these three titles. And then Peter looks at the church that he's writing to and says, now you're the temple, you're the priest, you're the sacrifice mm. for a world. And when you, uh, it reminded me of a passage where um, after Jesus comes in on the donkey and he goes into the temple, and we've talked about this passage before, but he starts flipping tables and, and the Pharisees get really upset. And the reason they get upset is because the kids are still singing Hosanna and the lame and the blind and, and the people who weren't allowed up to that point in the temple are now welcomed. Um, and so it just made me think when Jesus is looking at himself or when God, when Peter's like Jesus was the temple, Jesus welcomed those people into himself all the time. And maybe another definition of the church is if, if, if Peter says, now you are the temple, are we that group of people where the lame, the blind, the people that the rest of the world might cast out, are we a welcoming, are we welcoming them, welcoming them into our community, our life? And once again, if Jesus is the cornerstone that we're building upon and he was the temple and he was the example, and then he looks at us and says, now you are the, the royal priesthood, you are the holy nation, you are the, the go-between, are we... Is the church that place in our world where it's not about paying your way in? It's not about how good you can be. It's not about dressing a certain way. It's not about welcoming people who are like you, but it's actually a place where the hurting and the, the lost, a place where those who are need a place to belong, a place to be loved. If we, if God looks at us and calls us that temple, the body, um, do we miss it sometimes because we, or have we missed it sometimes because we have gone along with what culture says about what potentially church is rather than saying, man, we're supposed to be a hospital for these hurting, bleeding people. And if we're the temple of God, if that's what he thought of the temple, how do we take that on? And maybe salvation is a group of people who are continually trying to be like Jesus. And part of that is you welcome in your midst the people that Jesus would have welcomed in. I don't know that I want to adopt this metaphor wholesale. It's just kind of hitting me right now in this conversation, but let's just go with the metaphor of the hospital. Um, so if the church is a hospital, um, kind of receiving the sick, uh, the, the church, the, a hospital also has nurses. Mm-hmm. A hospital also has doctors. I feel, like, I feel like the focus has been on the church, one or the other. And it's really been bothering me as we talk about church and culture. It's like there are these churches that are completely motivated by the unchurched. Sure. So you have these churches that everything they do is because they're trying to get attract people that aren't in the church to come to their church. But I always think to myself, like, but what about me? Mm-hmm. What about my children? What about the people who are in the church who have not arrived yet, who are not as spiritually as mature, at least as I hope to be a year from now? Sure. 
for me, as as one who is hoping to be attractional, you know, inviting, inclusive, all these types of things. For me, the church is also a place where I find healing, where I find correction as iron sharpens iron. I need the church. I, I love Paul's metaphor of the body for the church where he says, you know, um, the he says, you know, some of you are different members of the body, like an eye, a hand, a foot. And it's not one of the places, it's not one of the members of the body's place to say to the other, I don't need you. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember is we have, we have politicized the church to our detriment. I was listening to a thinker the other day who says, you know, in, in modern culture, everything's politicized, but the fact of the matter is not everything is political. Like there are some things that just are, that aren't political. And I feel like, I feel like in order to push our different agendas in the church, we've really politicized the church and church language, but it is not my place to say to people who are a part of the church that I disagree with, I'm just going to cut you off. The, the church has historically always been a place where different people come together to be the actual revelation of Jesus Christ to each other. And this to me is the saddest part of the Reformation is that at the Reformation, some people would say at the Great Schism where the Orthodox, the Eastern Church and the Western Church split, but at the Reformation really, and you said something about 30,000 different denominations maybe in the world today, Christian denominations. The sad thing about the Reformation is that divorce became okay. Yeah. We became okay with saying, you know what? I'm just going to cut this foot off. I don't need it. And what we really have in a sense is we have, we have kind of sectarian um, bodies of Christ. Now, now I'm not saying that the situation is hopeless. I love denominationalism. And I think that in my in my generation and in the age to come, I think that we're seeing the value of these different denominations. I don't know about your town, but in my town, we're working together. Yeah. The different denominations are coming together and it's a beautiful, I see the body of Christ. I'm not trying to tear down the body of Christ in, in this analogy, but what we've become okay with is in our, in our polarities of politics and our different understandings of theology, we have essentially said, and in our understanding of salvation, we said, you know what? You don't agree with me. You don't have the same version of me. Fine. I don't need you. Right. I don't need you for my own development spiritually. I don't need you for my own development kind of uh, in um, criticism of, of the way, not just my ideology of the way I think, but the way I live my life. And I don't, I don't need you for salvation. And because we've said this about all of these, because we've said this about the church, I think that we have this understanding that we don't need the church for salvation and that individual salvation and the church are kind of, distant realities. Yeah, we were just at some church meetings, Jonathan and I, and yearly meetings that we have to go to as part of our tribe. And one of our general superintendents was there. And I think he spoke to this beautifully. He was looking at the passage in Isaiah 11 and how, and he just kept making the point that in this passage, just the passage that the wolf will lie down with the lamb or the lion will lie down with the lamb and the children will play over the hole of the asp. And he was just saying that, that this is a, picture of what the church should be. And one thing he kept hitting was, he's like, the passage doesn't ask lions to not be lions anymore. But being a lion is now different. Rather than getting what you want for yourself, now you're going to be for the lambs and you're going to protect the lambs. Whereas before, when you were a lion, you would go after the lamb or you would eat the lamb. And now being a lion is a totally different 
understanding. And so he, he just kept making the point that diversity actually makes us stronger and different opinions actually makes us stronger. But how the church is different is in our world, it divides. And what we understand the church to be is we are striving to be more and more like Jesus, understanding that now as a lion or now as a lamb, it redefines what those positions are. Yes. And so I could be a Democrat or a Republican, but now those have different meanings, whereas before it was a way to engage and be a part of that. Now it is a way to to totally look at the world differently through the perspective of Jesus and what it means for that. Which brings us back to the dude Simprian <laughs> and his toga and sandals. And is there salvation outside of the church, where he, which he said there isn't. When I first heard this topic or this comment in college, it caused me to initially be defensive. Hmm. And probably from my upbringing, you know, being part of the Enlightenment in a, a small church in Northwest Georgia and just the whole mindset. But the more that, that I thought through it and was taught about it, I would have to think that I agree. That if I'm really trying to be like Jesus, I think the only way is to be a part of a group of people who are always... Uh, setting parameters, who are always trying to to help me understand more about what that looks like. And when I understand the church is not a place or a locale, but it's a group of people who are really striving to be more and more like Jesus. Um, and, and, and then it just makes me think, if I'm really trying to be like Jesus, why wouldn't I want to be a part of a group of people who are heading the same direction I am as well? What are your thoughts? Well, if we believe the Bible to be true as it pertains to its teachings on the body of Christ— we understand the, the church to be the physical manifestation of Jesus in the world. How do I know Jesus in this world apart from the church? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and to the people that would say, I'm, I'm saved and I don't need the church, I would say there's, there's two things about your self-understanding that I think are flawed. The first is that the thing that Jeremy talked about earlier with Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, you think that at judgment that you'll be able to stand before God and say, no, 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 I figured it out, Lord. He might say to you, I'm sorry, I never knew you. That's a scary place to be. Um, this, the second, the second thing. So, so you, I think you kind of have a flawed, flawed ideology or understanding of scripture because Jesus did not say that ideology is going to save you in the end. But also I think it's kind of a selfish perspective. I think that it's somewhat narcissistic to say, I'm saved, but I don't need the church. Um, I'm a pastor, and I desperately need the church. There are people that come to me, and uh, you know, they pay me compliments of being, you know, a good pastor, or this, and then they kind of say, you know, that they need me in their life. And I say, you know, that's very flattering. But I'm being completely serious right now. I desperately need you yeah. in my life. Yeah. Yeah, in kind of this the system that we have, I'm the pastor, but you are God's revelation to me. Yeah. And I th I thoroughly believe that. Yep. There are people in, the people in our church continually correct me, and I desperately need it. Yep. They are Christ to me. And and this is where this is where we've gone wrong in North America and why we've had so many cults is we we've given we have this idea that a pastor or priest is kind of above the church. And our understanding of pastor priest is the, the leader of the church, but is very much in the church, yeah. you know? And um, I think that if you're asking the question, can I be saved apart from the church? Maybe you're asking the wrong question. 
The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.